I'm Sandra Pham, and I am your co-host and co-creator for Asian and Austin. And I'm Min Vu, also your co-host, co-creator for Asian and Austin. We're super excited for y'all to be here with us. This is our first episode. We're a little nervous. <laughs> yeah, but to give y'all a little bit more background about the show, so... Our goal is to really elevate the voices and stories of Asian Americans living in Austin while exploring what it means to be Asian American and, and that identity. So, you know, we'll bring you monthly episodes with featured special guests. So they could be CEOs, educators, artists, public officials in Austin and have, you know, conversations about that. And for those of you that don't know us, your lovely co-host, a little brief background on us. My pronouns are he, him. I am a proud gay Vietnamese American man living in Austin and have lived here collectively for about 20, yeah, 20 years. So That's a, good a long amount, time. A good amount of time, yeah. Uh, and my pronouns are she, her. I am also Vietnamese American and a quarter Chinese. And I've lived in Austin for about six years. It was interesting because we also have known each other for quite some time. We met each other in undergrad at UT Austin. And after college, you know, we kind of both went on our separate ways. Sandra moved back to Houston. I moved to Los Angeles. And so for about 10 years, we kind of just did our own thing. But in the last two years, when you moved back to Austin, we, we were able to reconnect. And obviously, so much happened in the world in those last two years. I mean, the pandemic, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, a huge rise in violence against Asian Americans related to the pandemic, the Atlanta spa shootings. And I think that just really led us to have these really introspective and vulnerable conversations with each other about our Asian American identities. Yeah, for sure. I find myself really desiring having a space to talk about my experiences with all the things that were happening during the pandemic and everything around it. So um, I do want to acknowledge we're not experts in all that's going on. And so we wanted to open up that dialogue with other Asian Americans in Austin and provide a platform to learn from them and also amplify their stories and experiences as well, because I certainly know we're not alone. And I think in addition to being able to provide that platform for Asian Americans to be able to share their experiences and stories. Specifically, the reason why we wanted to focus on Austin was because we both ended up moving back to Austin. It's a community that we live in. We see ourselves investing time and our lives in. And just with the recent growth of Austin, it's been really interesting to see how the city has evolved and changed. I mean, even according to the recent 2020 census, you know, Austin is the fastest growing large metro area in the United States. And more specifically in Austin, the Asian population is now the third largest race or ethnicity group in the city, which makes up nearly 10% of the total population. Yeah. And even with the population growth there, want to acknowledge all these amazing organizations around Austin that are focused um, on this work and, and we kind of, through our research, compiled a list of these organizations and want to share that out. If anybody's interested, we'll link it on our um, social profiles as well. But yeah, there's so many cool organizations doing great work and want to find opportunities to amplify their work as well. Yeah, and the Asian American umbrella itself is so large and so diverse. And I think part of this 
podcast is that we wanted to really honor that and know that, like as Sandra was saying, we're not experts in the experience of being Asian American. We're two <laughs> experiences of many. You know, there's East, South, Southeast Asians, and each individual's experience with being Asian American and, and kind of their relationship to that identity is so unique. I think we both agree that there's no one definition or one true way on how you're supposed to be quote-unquote Asian American and hopefully we'll be able to explore that more with our guests and the conversations that we'll be able to have with them. Most episodes will be centered around a specific theme so for example public service as an Asian American or diving deeper into the history of Asian Americans in Austin. With that we'll bring a special guest to interview discuss that topic and also get to know them and their experience in Austin. But for this very special episode, the special guest is us. So wanted to give you all a greater understanding of what type of experiences and perspectives we're bringing to the show as it relates to how we've explored our respective identities. I'm excited. So today we'll be interviewing each other with a few questions. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so you're in the hot seat, Min. I would love to share with our listeners, yeah, a little bit more about your family and your upbringing. Let's start with how did your family get to the U.S.? Yeah, that's an interesting story. So my mom and dad had two different journeys, and they actually didn't meet until they arrived in the states. But for my dad, he's one of ten kids. Really, right after the fall of Saigon, they had an opportunity to be able to. Min, could you tell, I guess some of our listeners may not be familiar with the fall of Saigon. Could you tell us a little bit more about, obviously it was part of the Vietnam War and what that kind of represented? Yeah. Well, my grandpa was a chauffeur in the U.S. Embassy. So, you know, the U.S. was pulling out at that point uh, during the fall of Saigon. So, you know, North Vietnam succeeded mm -hmm. and you know there was a lot of confusion and uncertainty on what the future of the country would look like especially for those who were fighting uh, in the South Vietnamese army or part of kind of that that effort and so when the opportunity came because my grandpa was a chauffeur in the U.S. embassy he was able to to find transport out of the country but it had to happen pretty immediately. And my dad and his siblings and my grandparents, they all got on a plane with just kind of the clothes on their back, really. And yeah, made made the trek and the trip over to the States, but first stopped in Guam and then to Camp Pendleton. And then were sponsored by a farmer in West Texas, but then eventually resettled in San Angelo, Texas after a church sponsored them. There was conflict and tension uh, with the, the farmer, which maybe can be for a later episode, but that's how my dad got to San Angelo, Texas. My mom, on the other hand, arrived by boat. Her boat journey was harrowing, which also can be for a later episode, yeah. but she came a couple years later after, after the war ended. And so my mom reunited with her siblings who were living in New Mexico at the time. And my dad was traveling around and the communities are so small in that part of the US. And so, they met and eventually she moves and I was I was born in San Angelo, Texas, which yeah. is small like West Texas town. Yeah. So tell us about growing up there and then obviously your eventual move to Pflugerville. Yeah. San Angelo was interesting. You know, it's it's uh, I was only there up until around seven. So I didn't really because we had such a large family, 
a lot of my community w- were my cousins and my aunts and uncles. And the community is so small in terms of like a Vietnamese community there. It was still a tight knit Vietnamese community. So I grew up going to like different family functions with other Vietnamese families. And Did so... you feel like when your parents left San Angelo, was that community still intact? Like was that existing in Pflugerville as well? Yeah, after a couple of years, we moved over to Pflugerville and yeah, there was still, you know, a community in Pflugerville for sure. My dad's a very awesome MC. He likes to karaoke <laughs> and so course, yeah. he is still very much prominently in the community going to different MCing different Vietnamese weddings because he can speak English very well but also Vietnamese. And so, yeah, there was there was a community there. Like, I grew up going to that, the yeah. Lunar New Year celebrations. So, yeah, it was interesting. We, you know, I grew up there. But I also remember, I think by that time, you know, I was just entering a new school and I was trying to make new friends. And I think that's where I started really becoming more aware of my Asian American identity And so as I started entering the public education system and learning kind of that culture, Mm -hmm. seeing it juxtaposed with what I was learning and experiencing at home in terms of like a Vietnamese culture and tradition, I started to feel some tension with feeling othered and different, especially at school. Yeah. You know, that's where like the teasing happens and... I kind of realized like, oh, wait, I'm a li- like I'm a little different. All my cousins who obviously looked like me are no longer in the picture anymore. And now I'm surrounded by a predominantly white classroom and also dealing with my sexuality too, mm. to be honest. So yeah, let's let's dive into that because <laughs> obviously, you know, middle school, high school are really formative years, but now you're moving to a new place dealing with multiple parts of your identity, right? Your sexuality, as well as your ethnicity and culture, what you were brought up at home and what you're seeing at school. Tell us more about that. I think at a young age, I realized pretty quickly that I had these intersectional identities that at the time felt like burdens or felt like Mm. these were dangerous identities to hold because it didn't make me feel safe because I felt so othered and I didn't belong. And as a kid, you primarily just want to feel safe and like accepted and like you secure and and where you're at and moving to a new city you know that identity conversation wasn't something that my parents were talking about necessarily because they were so focused on making sure that we had the safety and security physically to to be successful and to to be healthy and, and good in that sense so this other aspect of exploring what it meant to be Asian American in Central Texas, in Pflugerville, but also to be this, you know, closeted young gay kid. I knew that there were, there was one identity that I couldn't change, and that's how I looked, right? Like, everyone would know that I'm Asian, but I could maybe, like, suppress being gay. Maybe that meant, like, I didn't talk about watching Buffy growing up, or, like, (laughs) that I liked, you know, different things that maybe would out me as gay and then on the other hand because the way that I looked I had to adapt that into another way so I mean I've talked very openly about how I feel like I've whitewashed myself growing up and for those that like don't know what whitewashing is it's basically like stripping any sort of cultural identity that I had growing up at home and not really feeling comfortable sharing that at school or in public yeah right do you think your parents were aware that you were doing that? I don't know, to be honest. I don't think that they were. I think they wanted me to succeed in school. 
and to be a good student and to be sure. you know successful right on the a plus exactly and so they're like whatever you need to do to do that then we're good and in my head the way that i needed to do that was i needed to be what i thought other people needed me to be which is maybe less asian more proper fitting into the norm quote unquote of this like white culture even in the way that i spoke or the way i interacted with teachers the way that i made friends with i mean i had a pretty diverse group of friends growing up but i was still like the token asian and i thought that i played that role really well like i learned how to play that role really well and they were you know at the time i didn't associate with many other asian americans in school mostly because i think it was like a defense mechanism for myself to not be lumped in to whatever preconceived notions classmates or people had about them. Yeah, I mean you talk about it obviously so openly. Now I'm curious to know what was that turning point for you where you really became aware of this whitewashing where you're like, "Oh, this is a coping mechanism for me." I think that came around 18, but I feel like I went through different like phases of coping. You know, as a kid, it was like, "Okay, let me whitewash myself to try to not just try to fit in." And then eventually it became like, "Okay, I get it. I'm Asian. This isn't going to like escape me necessarily. So let me beat them to the punch of any sort of like joke that they might make." So my aim screen name was like <laughs> "The Little Asian Noodle." I love and, it. And it was, you know, it it was me leaning into the identity, but also in a way, I think at the time, I felt like I was reclaiming Mm-hmm. the power that I may have felt like anyone else had over me because it's like hey I'm beating you to the punch like I already get it I already know the joke you don't have to make it so being self-deprecating in that way was another phase of it and then I think when I turned 18 I actually started being curious about my parents story the story that I just shared and actually asking them because growing up they didn't talk about it you know they didn't talk about what their journey was to no. the states or what their experience was like and right mine didn't either yeah i mean it's super traumatic obviously yeah and so it really helped me kind of get to a place of understanding the power that the identity even has and and all that comes with it and to be more proud of it to realize the ways in which i was coping with it. it it's when i was able to learn more about their story that i drew strength in a different way to my asian american identity so you you know you've talked us through your childhood really becoming aware of what some of your coping mechanisms were coming to terms with it how did that lead to now how you show up what does asian american mean to you college years your professional life and all the work that you do today. I think there was a while that it felt good. Like I felt secure in my Asian American identity or so I thought. When I went to college at UT, I remember attending a Vietnamese student association meeting, which is like the first time that I was really in a group of similarly aged Vietnamese Americans. Wait, so I also joined Vietnamese Student Association <laughs> when I was in college. I wonder if we went to the same general meeting, meeting. general meeting thing. I don't know, What? maybe. Yeah. Well, and we wouldn't have known because right after that I basically <laughs> was like I felt like I didn't belong there. Like I felt like I had Whoa. whitewashed myself too much that now I was an imposter in some ways. Like that they wouldn't accept me because I wasn't Vietnamese enough. It was one of those things where I was 
more secure, but I still didn't lean in as much as I thought I was going to in college. And then when I moved to Los Angeles, I didn't really think about it then too. This was right before Asian representation in, in film and TV was becoming a lot more popular and talked about. So it wasn't really part of the conversation. I think I was just so interested in, in being in that LA space. and Yeah, so tell, tell us what, um, what drew you to LA. Why did you leave Texas and go to LA? I mentioned Buffy and I mentioned, <laughs> you know, watching some shows that really resonated and really storytelling and TV in particular was something that I felt like I could find refuge in during that time, especially when I was feeling so othered and like I didn't belong. There were these shows of outcasts or people who take Buffy, for example, she is this teenage high school girl and people have preconceived notions about what she's expected to do or how she's expected to be. And yet here she is like at nighttime slaying demons and vampires <laughs> and saving the world, right? Like there's a yeah. bigger, greater purpose. And that really helped me as a kid feeling like I had a greater purpose or there was something more than just feeling like I was different and didn't belong. <laughs> I wanted to help other people make more Buffies. More Buffies. So that right. other people could feel safe and like find refuge and feel like right. they're being seen. And... That's really led a lot of my like personal and professional careers and goals is how do I help facilitate that storytelling specifically for underrepresented or marginalized communities? I mean, that's also why I wanted to do this podcast with you is because I think amplifying those stories and those voices is just really powerful and can be really healing and also community building. I think because of my identities too, that intersection of, of being both Vietnamese, gay, navigating this in-between throughout my entire life it just has led me to really champion the underdog really and for people who feel like they don't belong how did you have that conversation with your parents to say hey mom and dad guess what i'm going into entertainment i'm moving to la i am not going to be what maybe they saw as a safe traditional yes. career they didn't understand it, to be honest. And I didn't have that specific of a nuanced conversation with them in terms of like why I was doing it, because also there's a language barrier there. So we speak, you know, Viet English, basically. Yep. I think for a while they they really were like, okay, but you're going to transfer to business school, right? You're going to transfer to business oh. school, right? Like this is just like a placeholder major mm -hmm. that you're doing. And then when it was like, oh, I'm moving to Los Angeles because I was accepted into the NBC page program. Once they heard NBC, they were like, oh, I know what NBC is. <laughs> oh, this seems legit. This seems like something that I can wrap my head around. But I would say, you know, it was it was hard for sure. Even for me, I felt like part of me was letting them down by following down this path. But I feel so fortunate because that's led to the opportunities that I've been able to do and even more recently being more connected in the community outside of film, but doing, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion work in the startup space and helping underrepresented founders and providing a platform for them and opportunities for them and just learning more about the communities that we live in, the communities that make up Austin. So it's been really rewarding in that sense. Interesting. So yeah, you've taken us through your journey from childhood to your, your life now. Just coming into this Asian American identity, some of the questions that you've had, the struggles, do you feel like you're having conversations with your parents about any of that now that you're an adult? I do in the limited proficiency that I'm able to. And I think it can be really challenging though, because I have that limited proficiency on both sides of us, of the table, 
that I can't express fully all the things that I want to be able to share. I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, they came here and they were trying to make it work. They were trying to survive. They were in survival mode. And so they weren't thinking about how to fit in to the U.S. necessarily. You know, they were thinking about how do we get jobs and how do we provide for the family and raise the family here and keep our culture and tradition alive while still raising kids in a completely different country with different cultural values and beliefs. And that was part of the tension growing up. That, that was the in-between that I navigated of their expectations and what they were trying to retain and keep alive versus what I was learning and experiencing out in the world outside of the house through school, through university, through work. Even then, coming out, that was another instance where I was confronted with the Asian American identity again in a way that I didn't anticipate. Mm. And so now I'm interacting with a community that has also preconceived notions about Asian Americans and what that means and, you know, dating and, and just interacting with people and people's understanding of that lived experience as well. Yeah, so I want to talk about how you felt about this community now that you're ready to come out and also what drew you back specifically to Austin. Why why do you still continue to live here? Austin's home for me. You know, my parents still live here. My brother lives pretty close by. And so I knew I always wanted to come back. Those family values, you know, that family culture and tradition was still very strong. And I knew I wanted to be close to family. And so that's why I moved back to Austin. And Austin was, at the time, you know, it's. I feel like it's been growing and evolving for a long time now. But even back then, it was like, oh, it's on the up and up and it's booming. And so it felt like there was a lot of good opportunity there. And I was able to, like, come back for the Texas Film Commission, which was still keeping me in the industry, but I could do it back home and be closer to family. So I think coming back to Austin and being more cognizant of all the different identities that I have, I started to notice the diversity slash lack thereof of Austin. And then entering into the gay community and learning about that, how there can be different prejudices even within the LGBTQ community. I've spoken openly about, you know, how on some apps this isn't as common anymore, but back then they would be pretty explicit about like, they're not interested in any, what they would say, like blacks, femmes, fats, Mm. or Asians. And so that was like a very interesting thing to have to confront and that's what I mean by having to like oh here's my Asian American identity again coming into play and feeling like it's not accepted or it's like an it's an other you know it's not a desirable trait to to have and so that was pretty challenging and even at the film commission I remember there was an instance in Austin I was like double parked trying to pick up takeout food so it was my bad I came out this guy was clearly agitated and he was like what do you think you're doing I'm like hey I'm so sorry I'll move my car I was just picking up my to-go food he was like this is America like just that sentence alone it shook me in the sense like what are you insinuating here I was born in San Angelo Texas like am I not American pretty you know American (laughs) as they get I remember one of the like immediate thoughts in my head was like dude I work for the state of Texas if only you could see my resume and I think that's a huge part of, you know, the gymnastics that I played in my head of trying to prove myself in a lot of different ways through my identity, through my career, through suppressing being gay, like just like let me exist, you know, and not have to justify my existence. Yeah. So how do you how do you feel about Austin today? So obviously recognizing it's not a perfect city. What well, keeps you here? 
I will say the community that I have been able to find here has been really, really beautiful and talk about like a chosen family. Obviously my family's still here too, but the friends that I've been able to make and create family out of as well has been really special to me. There's so many different chapters of my life in Austin that feels special despite all of those circumstances or all of those events. I think that's what keeps me here is is the potential to be able to to find those people even despite all of the obstacles that come with a growing city and the obstacles that come with a predominantly white city. Thank you for sharing your story. That was a lot, right? I feel like I, I myself, and having known you for 10 plus years now, even learned so much about you. So what, is there anything else you'd like to share? Yeah. You know, I've spoken about how I've had to confront my Asian American identity through different phases of my life. And I think I would be remiss not to acknowledge the privilege really that comes with that, that comes with being Asian American. Because in the greater context of race relations in the U.S., we fall in this very interesting middle ground of being in some ways, yeah, like the model minority. And there's a whole context behind how problematic that is for our community and how that's been used as a a wedge between black and brown communities and the Asian American communities. But I will say that I benefited from that growing up. I leaned into it as a form of safety until it wasn't. Because at the end of the day, there's still this idea of a perpetual foreigner that I've faced. Going back to that example of the guy who very explicitly said, this is America, as if I wasn't on equal footing with him in this country regardless of the fact that I have been born and raised here. So with understanding that privilege that I do carry, it's been something that has allowed me to really advocate for all of us in marginalized communities. If I'm able to use that privilege to get the ear of those in power to listen to me for whatever reason that they feel less threatened or they feel more comfortable speaking to me than using some of that privilege to be able to advocate for all of our marginalized communities as best as I can. Whew. Okay, wait, that was, we got deep. That was a lot. I want to turn the tables a little bit and get to know Sandra a little bit more for our listeners. So I'll ask, Probably similar questions, but we'll see how the conversation, where the conversation takes us. Let's start with your family. How did your family (laughs) get to the U.S.? Yeah, so obviously the same war, the Vietnam War, affected my family um, and kind of tore them apart. My family was based there. My mom was um, separated from her family. My grandma and my aunt were able to get um, on a plane to the U.S., My mom, on the other hand, happened to be on a refugee boat, really trying to escape, you know, with Mm. the fall of Saigon, as as you mentioned, similar to your story. She kind of landed in a few places and eventually ended up in the Netherlands. So as you can imagine, she is having to flee her country. She separated from her family. She had just um, her nephew with, with her. They were on a boat, had no idea where they were going, ended up in a very foreign country. 
uh, language obviously they had zero knowledge of and just had to start anew. And so, yeah, I mean, my mom, similar to yours, doesn't really talk about it a lot. And I know she went through a lot of trauma and then ended up in, in a place where, yeah, completely foreign. Luckily, Europe and, and the Netherlands were really open and welcoming to refugees. But immediately she kind of built that small, really small community with those that, you know, we call boat people, people who fled uh, Vietnam via boat and really tried to escape and, and salvage their lives with nothing but the clothes on their back. And so she arrived there, met my dad, and was there for quite some time. And it's always incredible when I think about this is uh, somehow she got in touch with my grandma and this was pre-internet. I still to this day have no idea how they got in touch with each other. Like it's miraculous. But got in touch with my grandma who was in the States and my grandma was able to sponsor us over. And um, yeah, a few years later we were able, my mom and my siblings and I, our entire family were able to come over and we, she was based in Houston. So that's kind of where I started my life in Houston. But it's interesting because I struggled a lot because my mom moved to the Netherlands. I, that's all I knew. I grew up in the Netherlands trying to figure out and I definitely was one of the few Asian kids in, in my school. But my primary language was Dutch. And then my mom was teaching us Vietnamese at home to try to speak that. And then we pick up and go to the US. And now I'm living in Texas. And I was like really struggling with that. And really prominent piece or example of really how that changed or manifested into my life was I remember my mom was signing me up for public school in Houston. And they looked at my birth certificate and they saw my name. I had my Vietnamese name that I'd gone by my entire life. In the Netherlands, it was Mylan. We just went by that. I came here and they're like, oh, you have an English name on here, it's Sandra. But they saw that and so they wrote Sandra on everything. All my paperwork, everything was Sandra. And I remember in first grade, I was struggling a lot. The teacher would be like, Sandra, Sandra, blah, blah, blah. A, I didn't speak English. Nobody else spoke Dutch in my class. So yeah, I didn't have a translator. and. Now I was being called by a name that wasn't mine um, or didn't feel like mine. And so I just remember those really formative years for me feeling really lost at a very early age, just like grappling with my identity. I'm like, wait, am I Dutch? Am I Vietnamese? Am I Texan? Like, what is this? And like, you're just learning all of these things. And I definitely was similar to you, had a language barrier with my mom. I mean, she barely spoke Dutch. I barely spoke Vietnamese and now we're both learning English together and so the language barrier was for sure there so it's not like I ever went to mom and said mom like I'm struggling I don't know what I am and so with that how did you as a kid cope with all of that that's a lot that's... yeah so I could definitely see throughout my childhood it just showing up in different areas of my life, right? So like as I started going through elementary school, trying to figure out what my identities were, middle school, high school, and I grew up in A-Leaf. A-Leaf is a very diverse area of Houston. A lot of immigrants uh, happen to move there. There's like a little Chinatown. So there, there are communities there, but I definitely don't know if I completely recognize that in, in just my upbringing until about high school, I would say. High school is when I recognized a lot of my friend groups were diverse, but I, there weren't a lot of Vietnamese kids that I hung out with. 
And so it's funny that you bring up your recognizing how you whitewashed yourself because I certainly can feel that as well because I I did the same, right? But I didn't really know it because I was like, you know, I didn't think I was trying to force myself to be a typical American teenager and model myself after what I saw on TV, but I absolutely did. I mean, I wanted to fit in in any way that I could. Did the Hollister thing. I mean, do you remember the graphic tees and the puka shells and like just doing anything in emulating anything I saw on TV because I felt like that was the perfect thing I need to be. And what was, I mean, at the time, what what was being shown on TV? Just to, like, give our listeners a reminder I mean, of, I, like, I what we were watching. the Olsen twins. Yeah. Like, I had their books. Yeah. I wanted to be an American teenager. And when it came to lunch and all those things, my mom cooked a lot of traditional Vietnamese food at home. And I remember us as kids, my siblings and I, just threw fits. We're like, we just want spaghetti for once, lady. And so my mom actually learned how to make spaghetti and like started buying lasagnas and like she also had to work and so she started buying us TV dinners. Also, I just want to say there needs to be a class on Vietnamese spaghetti because I feel like it's <laughs> yes. actually different. From, it is different, I think. Like they just, my mom makes spaghetti as well too, but it definitely is not like normal no. spaghetti. It's she, a well, she bit adapted. Different. Yeah. And so, and my, and my grandma raised us as well because we, when we moved here, we lived with her. And I, to this day, if I buy bottled spaghetti sauce, I think it's too tangy. Because my grandma would put fish sauce and sugar and soy sauce and like the Asian, quote unquote, Asian flavors. They sweeten it up. It is interesting because we definitely adapted those quote unquote American dishes. But yeah, so I, I, I went through this phase where really I think the college, college was like the turning point for me where I sought to learn a little bit more about my Vietnamese identity. I didn't have deep conversations with my mom, but I always had questions. I wanted to know more about the country she left behind, the culture. I had such little knowledge of it because of only what she raised us on, but I definitely saw Vietnamese Student Association when I went to college, but I had a different experience though. I really kind of leaned into it and I was like, yes, I want to meet other students my age who were probably going through the same thing as me and going like, I want to find other Vietnamese Americans that wanted to learn more about traditions and what was great about the organization is they taught you traditional recipes or even had some like language lessons or whatever and i found some comfort in that but at the same time there were moments where i was like oh am i just overcorrecting or trying too hard right to be vietnamese or whatever that meant at this point and so i think i struggled a little bit but also just really kind of enjoyed my experience but Kind of fast forward post-college and through my career, my identity just became more apparent. I worked in oil and gas for a while with a lot of old white men. And there was not a moment where I was not aware of my race or my age or my sex, to be honest with you. It was constantly good old boys club. It absolutely is. And it's such an old traditional industry that... I struggled a lot and I remember I had a boss, she was a woman of color and I just was sharing my struggles and she was blunt with me. She was like, it doesn't get any better. You just kind of need to learn to grow thick skin. How did you, in that industry particularly, like navigating it as a woman and also a woman of color, did you feel you had to 
focus on one part of your identity even more than the other or how did that show up? Yeah, it's interesting. I think through my career, it's funny, one of the critiques I got was you have a professional voice, you're too professional. And I think where that came from was I tried to sound as white as possible. Speak clearly, make sure my English was perfect. I think that was kind of a coping mechanism that I had. And so it's funny because today people will go, oh, wow, it sounds like you have a corporate voice. And I had the realization while I was like, I had to adopt that. Like if there was any word that I felt like I said with a funny accent, I was going to be called out for it. And so, yeah, those were part of my career and shaping my career. I was really learning how to be professional. I see you doing quotes like air quotes of professional and air quotes of American and air quotes of corporate. And I think what you were saying too, yeah, that's what is that perception or what have we been fed or told in this case, the Olsen twins for you (laughs) of what that looks like. And then how that has shown up for you it sounds like you've you know we're trying to emulate a lot of that right and so now I think we're really redefining what all of those things mean like what does professionalism mean what does corporate America mean and really kind of changing that and so I learned to kind of separate my personal identity from work I think that's what it just felt like the the professional world was teaching me was like you don't show up to work being proud of being Vietnamese or your culture and all of that. You were just kind of a corporate drone. You're one of many. And so I had to do a lot of work to undo that. And then I think the the time and space that it finally happened was when I realized I was just incredibly unhappy with my career and also struggling with my identity, who I was as an you know, young adult in my early twenties and trying to navigate that as many. I I definitely would say I had a quarter life crisis where I genuinely was like, I don't know who I am. I don't know in any facet, like my professional career, my personal life, my, my culture, like who am I? What's the core to me? And so I would say I did a lot of exploration. And so what did that exploration look like? I mean, I would say I dated a lot of people. And a lot of different individuals where I learned more about myself and what it, what my culture did mean to me. So yeah, long story short, through this quarter life crisis and dating and all this stuff, I just really had this awakening, I would say. I don't think there was one thing. It was just all these things, just constantly feeling like I was not happy with who I showed up as and doing a lot of work. Through that exploration, kind of those years of re-kind of discovering yourself, it sounds like, how did that inform the work that you started to do after that? Yeah, I just found ways and outlets to make sure that I was supporting this community that I was a part of and recognizing my faults in, in those things that I did, you know, maybe didn't acknowledge or support when I needed to. So often I talk about the image of Asian men in America. So, I mean, the media does a terrible job of representing Asian men and Asian women, right? So I remember just Asian women are always represented, especially Vietnamese women, as submissive and lovers of these men, American soldiers of war and all these things. And oh my God, it bothered me. And how triggering it was when I would meet people out through dating or whatever and the word exotic. I cannot tell you how triggering that was 
just like, recognizing I was fetishized. People explicitly yes. would tell you? Or like going back to work in oil and gas, older men would come up to me and go, my sister-in-law is Korean or I was in the Korean War. Or I was in the Vietnamese War. Trying any way to like connect with me by talking about some Asian that they knew. And then, yeah, men our age would just go, you're so exotic and cringe cringe like it just was awful dating as a young woman and trying to navigate the world but also with this identity was awful and i talk about this very openly with my friends but asian women are so fetishized and so many women of color are it's awful it's it just makes dating not enjoyable at all like you have to worry about any person that you potentially meet if they have an asian fetish because it's very very real I'm nodding ferociously. <laughs> <laughs> and and you can attest to this, right? You've had these experiences even in the gay community. Yeah, for sure. That's why I'm nodding ferociously. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I feel like that could be a whole other episode and topic. Yeah, but fast forward, right? So I'm going through all this work and I decided to move back to Austin because I, I really do love Austin. It offers so much and I happen to be in, in tech and it's, very different than traditional like oil and gas field, but I would say obviously comes with its own issues. And so I moved back to Austin and we kind of alluded to this earlier, but the pandemic for the past two years were really hard. We're really hard with the rise of violence, you know, all the anti-Asian acts that were happening against our community. I just really struggled with having places or having conversations around that. I muted myself a lot growing up and I wanted to fit in, but it was kind of a time when all of this was happening where I was like, I'm tired of not talking about it anymore. I need to talk about it. This doesn't feel safe or healthy for me. Who can I talk to? And obviously you were one of those people I reached out to and I was like, I don't know what to do. This is really a struggle and to feel like our community was targeted just based on the way we looked and blamed for this global pandemic. And I, I just, I had a hard time. When you moved back to Austin against that backdrop, how did that experience for these past two years that you've been in Austin differ from when you were an undergrad with um, that backdrop specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think I've really come and pushed through wanting to explore my identity further and like really f- wanting to f- be proud of this identity that I hadn't been before. And now I have the tools to really kind of explore and talk about that. Before, you know, as a teenage kid or even younger than that, these are things that I couldn't openly talk to my my parents about. It wasn't like, mom, I don't know what it means to be Asian American language barrier. And so I was finding these various communities or places that I wanted to talk through about. And I'm just so inspired by a lot of these great organizations or groups, you know, Asians in mental health and like all these groups that are really finding a space and and amplifying those voices and resources. That really is my goal through having these conversations with guests through this podcast is to yeah connect some more dots so that other people can also feel like they're having conversations. Part of me has also just been really driven to explore my legacy and my identity further because of you know, I'm I'm at a certain age where I'm starting to think about building my family, a family, and the future, and 
with the passing of my grandmother, really thinking through those that came before us, what brought them here, capturing those stories, really understanding their history and understanding we're also crafting, I'm crafting a new generation here, right? Like with, with future kids that I have. And so that's been really top of mind for me. It's just, how do I want to have those conversations with my children and my grandchildren in the future to talk about how did our life come to be what it is today in, in the U.S.? What was my mother's journey? What was my grandmother's journey? What were the generations before that? And how does that all shape? And it's kind of daunting <laughs> to think about. That's really yeah. scary to think about that you're, you're shaping a legacy. But um, yeah. Well, I have two questions, I guess. Is there anything that you feel like you wanted to share that you weren't able to share about how your Asian identity has kind of evolved over the years and how that shaped you? I definitely went through the work where I recognized there's no separation. I am Asian. I'm Vietnamese American and that is such a huge part of me and I don't want to conceal that anymore. I want to show up fully as me in all aspects of my life, personally, professionally, in my friendships, in romantic relationships. This is such an ingrained part of, of who I am and so navigating that space what does that actually mean um and so i think it's just important that that i've acknowledged that and it's part of my work yeah and so after reflecting on your entire history so to speak and knowing that your relationship to your asian american identity can change and evolve over time as it has where do you feel like you are today in terms of what it means to be asian american for you yeah, I think it comes from a place of pride, really being proud of this this aspect of me. I think you and I have talked about our, our struggles and just feeling almost embarrassed about about it, right? Like, because I just, I think I brainwashed myself to think that I needed to be the perfect American teenager or whatever. And now I just want to embrace all aspects and identities that I have and yeah, so being Asian American is just fully authentically being proud of all of me. What about you? It's very similar to what, what you were saying, and it's that authenticity and leaning into that authenticity of... This one's tough. This one is tough. I think for me, part of that authenticity means that there's no roadmap and there's not one way to be Asian American and there's power in that whereas before there there's been a lot of fear and anxiety over how am I supposed to show up in this world how am I what lane am I supposed to occupy how am I supposed to appease my parents and their expectations of me while also still navigating this U.S. American culture and what that's kind of brought out in me right but I think now today I find strength in both of those words of Asian yes. and American and knowing that we are really paving our own road and our own map of what that's supposed to look like and what it's supposed to look like is going to be different for each of us yeah. and there's beauty in that and there's power and there's strength in that and I think that's what I'm really most excited about this show and being able to explore what that means for all of our brothers and sisters under the Asian American umbrella and what that means for them because although we're all lumped together under this umbrella we we know 
that our experiences are so unique and vastly different. And there's not one one right way to be anything in this world, mm-hmm. specifically Asian American. So Wow. Wow. That was really eloquently put, Min. <laughs> I'm just gonna say with that ditto. Um Okay, to wrap up, I want to lighten the mood uh, a little <laughs> and ask some rapid-fire questions, if, if that's cool, Min. Yeah, um, let's do it. Okay, so tell me, what was your favorite Asian snack growing up or even today? Uh, okay, you know those rice crackers? They're like kind of oval-shaped. They're a little salty, but like sweet. I don't know, I grew up, my grandma had them a lot, and I would like munch on them. And I tried them recently again. They're still good, but they're, I forgot how dry they are. <laughs> but it's so good. The Wait, no, so I good. love them. They're like, yeah, rice cakes, but yeah. more like the Asian version. Okay, what is your favorite Austin hobby? I love a good hike down to Sculpture Falls. That one at least has some elevation down, and then you get to the, like, the, the trail, so that's a lot of fun. Okay, and what is your favorite Asian condiment? I gotta go with the fish sauce. Yes! It's like in everything. I didn't realize until later in life how much sodium. I'm basically just eating salt. Yes. Like copious amounts of salt in everything. But, I mean, it's in all of our dishes, so it's really good. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, you dip it in egg rolls, vermicelli bowls, soups. I mean, you name it. Yeah, it goes in everything. All right, your turn. I'm going to go backwards. Favorite Asian condiment, go. Soy sauce. I mean, what can you not put on soy sauce? And, like, you can cook with it. And I love sushi, so, yes, I will eat everything. It's very versatile. Yeah, it's a good one. All right, favorite Austin hobby. What do you like to do in Austin? Uh, So, Min, you know, if there's an opportunity for me to talk about my dog, I will talk about my dog. My dog's name is Murphy. He is my best friend. So we do everything together. I moved to Austin so that we could hike. We love hiking, going to parks. We're really kind of lucky that Austin's really dog friendly. So anywhere I can take him. Nice. And your favorite Asian snack? I had so many, but there is this thing called... um, it's called bantil, so it's like basically fried dough, but it's so good. And has like a little bit of sesame seed. Um, you can't find a ton of bakeries that sell it, but it's it's my favorite. Okay. I don't know if I've had... Actually, I have had it before, but it is literally just dough. <laughs> but I support you in this answer. Um, cool. All right. Well, that's our show. <laughs> that was... A lot of fun. We got into a lot of stuff. We learned more about each other. Hopefully it resonated with some of y'all. Thanks so much for listening and and sharing your time with us. We hope that you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, on TikTok. Our handle is AsianInATX. We'll have a new episode next month. Be on the lookout. Remember, this is just the beginning of the conversation. And we really hope that you'll join us along the way. Please feel free to share feedback, share with your friends, let us know what you think. That's it, y'all. Bye, y'all. Bye.